I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Moonlight, the 2016 film written and directed by Barry Jenkins, based on Terrell Alvin McCraney's play in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So first quick announcement, we have passed our milestone of 750 patrons on dun, Patreon. Dun, dun, Yay! Dun, dun, Thank you everyone who signed up and is supporting us. You have unlocked our three episode series on the Indiana Jones trilogy, plus a patron exclusive on that other thing. Uh, that'll be fun to talk about. <laughs> Running for your life from Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot he was in the. Oh man, yeah. how did you? We've all tried to. <laughs> That's going to be an episode. But yes, thank you everyone for uh, supporting. We will have uh, new goals coming down the road pretty soon as we make our way to a thousand. Uh, we have some fun things planned, so keep an eye out for those. Uh, we'll let we'll let you know when they're in place. Keep telling your friends to join. There's more stuff. We want to do stuff more coming. stuff. There's lots of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yes, so that was very exciting. So thank you, everybody. Okay, so Moonlight is a film that we have not talked about for ever yet, which is like surprising because I was thinking back to when it was out and how it had this moment. Like it felt like there was a, a thing going on. It was nominated for eight Oscars. It won three of them, including Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best mm. Picture. And so it was really interesting and fun to revisit it because I had only seen it once in uh, theaters. And so it had been a little bit and it was cool to go back and relive it. But Brian, you've been fighting for this for a long time because it's one of your favorite movies. Is that safe to say? Yeah, It's definitely one of my favorite movies of the past uh, decade, I would say. It was number four in my top favorite of the, of the 2010s. And it's it's sort of, I just feel like I'm getting to that point in my life where it's like, it's rare that a movie just punches me in the face in a way that I want it to. Mm. And I'm just like, this, that was a really good movie. And I'm maybe not going to mm -hmm. think about it again. And yeah, I just, I loved it. The first time I saw it, I was just fully arrested by it. And I didn't, I'd seen the trailer. First of all, I just seen the like, the little snippet of a trailer, which was just Mahershala and, and Little in the Water mm -hmm. and with like the music over it. And I just thought, whatever this is, I want to see this, you know, and but I hadn't seen enough of it to really know what the story was about, which was also really engaging the first time through because you have moments like Little and Kevin wrestling and, you know, after they're, they're playing um, soccer. And and I was just is this is this going in a certain way you know and it kind of made it this like sort of we talked about this little portrait of a lady on fire like the less you know the more you're kind of going like is this my brain or is this movie actually doing that and then it is and okay cool but it also just it takes it's such a quiet drama that is that also feels so huge in the way that that barry jenkins directs it with the music and the mm -hmm. cinematography and, and everything everything is just operating on all cylinders uh, in this movie and I, so I really loved it then, but then it was a movie that just didn't leave me. And I think mm -hmm. that's the beautiful thing is that I've seen movies where I love them. And then and, and a few years later, I'm like, oh, I, I really liked that movie when I saw it that one time years ago. But uh, yeah, I've seen it, I think, four times now. And it just keeps 
keeps working for me. It's a movie that I can like just watch like a clip of on YouTube and get emotional and just it feels close to me in a way that it kind of doesn't make sense because I have no connection to this movie in terms of any of its external subject matter. Uh, but Trisha, you said something beautiful. I know we mentioned it before, but um, there's universality and specificity. Uh, so mm-hmm. that just just having someone tell a story that's very close to their heart, you know, even Terrell Alvin McCraney and Barry Jenkins, like they just have stories that are not the same story, but that between the two of them, they found so many similarities and stuff. So um, just telling something that was so specific and, and so near and dear to their heart goes through through the screen into my heart, basically. And it's like, <laughs> I love hearing your story, even if it is basically in no way my story. And I think that that's what is one of the most impressive things about this movie to me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. That's a lovely little synopsis of <laughs> the like the, the power of this movie also. And I, I feel like for me revisiting it this time, I had much the same experience where it kind of crept up on me, where kind of mm-hmm. in the beginning, it felt a little cold and I was a little like standoffish and then as it kept going I was found myself more and more engaged and then by the third section because obviously you know this movie's broken into these three sections by the third section I'm there I'm hanging on every word I'm completely yeah. like in the tension between mm-hmm. these two people I'm smack dab mm-hmm. in the middle of it and it's just so well done so well directed the performances are amazing there's just so much to talk about yeah and it, it feels like a one-of-a-kind movie also yeah yes. absolutely big yeah. time you saying that reminded me of a uh, nightcrawler uh the the one scene that this is beautiful scene if anybody hasn't seen nightcrawler that doesn't mean anything to <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah. we talked about like if you were with the movie up to that point that scene is perfect and if you're not that scene is like crazy and Moonlight's a movie where I, you definitely heard people say like, oh, it's just boring. Nothing happens. That diner scene is like 20 minutes long. But if you are in the movie, mm-hmm. like yeah. up to that point, then that scene is like the most tense and exciting scene ever. But if you're mm-hmm. not, then it's just people sitting there like catching up. And uh, it's just interesting how, how movies can do that, too. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was so happy to revisit this movie because I haven't seen it since theaters back in, was it 2016 when it came mm-hmm. out? Yeah. Like, yeah. 2015? Yeah, 2016. So the first time I saw this film, it was one of those experiences that was really weighted with expectations when I went into it. And mm-hmm. same thing happened for me with Brokeback Mountain way back in the day where, mm-hmm. you know, it's they're these rare kind of Oscar buzzy uh, films about uh, gay men or about a gay relationship or some kind of LGBT subject matter. And there's not a whole lot of those. I mean, there's a lot a lot more gay characters, a lot more representation now happening, especially in television and all over the place. So we don't have a dearth of gay stories really anymore. But this kind of a thing where it's like the right. Oscar movie, the big kind of festival award winner thing, being like a gay story is still kind of a rare, exciting thing as a gay person. And and so there's always kind of like, okay, cool. Finally, like, I get to see like really good filmmaking applied to a story about this type of character. That's really exciting. What both Brokeback Mountain does and what this movie does as well, they're both movies about masculinity and about toxic Mm -hmm. masculinity. One of them is about this kind of cowboy American Mm -hmm. West toxic masculinity. This one's about in a different time and place and setting, different community, but still dealing with those same topics. In both these movies, it makes sense and it is realistic that the main characters barely talk and don't express themselves and yeah if there is any semblance of like love or connection it's like extremely fleeting and hidden and yeah. when it comes it's almost like 
whatever like quote-unquote sex scene there is is almost like a cold clinical moment uh, Mm. in some ways because it's like so forbidden it's not even like you can't even deal with it uh so 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 to me i was just kind of i I was just personally frustrated because i was just like oh okay so it's like another it's like brokeback mountain type story transposed into a different environment like so it's just it's gonna be another one of these where it's like i don't feel like i'm getting i'm not gonna get an eternal sunshine for gay people i'm not gonna get like the big moulin rouge love story i'm gonna get another extremely quiet extremely closed (laughs) extremely subtle barely even gay don't even talk about (laughs) it really you know it's like so i went into it with these kind of hopes and dreams and came out disappointed and so that colored my first viewing of it in a way that wasn't fair to the movie i don't think so it wasn't trying to do the things that i like keep wanting right the oscar the oscar gay movie to do right so it was great to revisit it because this time i knew what it was i didn't have any expectations for it besides what it was and i was able to really sink into the language of the movie it reminds me of portrait of a lady on fire again uh the mm-hmm. director she she michael you brought up a quote from her something about like a movie kind of teaches you its language mm-hmm. or it, it teaches you kind of like how to watch it at a certain point and then you once you understand that then you then you are hooked in mm-hmm. and and i was able to do that this time with with moonlight where it, i feel like the movie did teach me how to watch it and once I was down with that, it was a really beautiful experience. And even on the first viewing, when I was not getting what I wanted, I was really still appreciating that it was, it did feel different because there, there's a whole aesthetic to the kind of sad real life story that has gotten tired, you know, like, <laughs> like the Sundance kind of gritty aesthetic of we're shooting this to kind of look ugly and feel dirty and the camera's always <laughs> shaking and it's like always it's super so, dark you actually can't see anything yeah, yeah it's so real because the camera shakes constantly like a person <laughs> is like scrambling to catch up and it was really refreshing to see the beautiful cinematography and the music the filmmaking by Barry Jenkins which was yeah bringing this really classical gorgeous aesthetic to a setting that's normally we we see it as if it's being shot in like a dirty documentary way which i'm just so mm-hmm. tired of you know like we're using the tools of cinema let's let's use them let's let's go beyond this this kind of 90s documentary aesthetic right i really agree with what you said about the movie teaching you its language and how it does take a few minutes to get hooked into that and figure out what that is mhm I remember watching it the year that it came out as part of like my Oscar movie screening series where I was like, let's just watch them all. And, you know, as a screenwriter and like as someone with admittedly kind of commercial tastes, <laughs> I often end up just trying to check all of the boxes of like, here's what a screenplay is supposed to do. And here's what a movie is supposed to do in an, a way that I also find annoying about myself. <laughs> And so, you know, in this movie, it starts off and I'm like, okay, where's the inciting incident? And I'm just kind Mm -hmm. of like looking around, like, what is the inciting Mm -hmm. incident here? (laughs) And like the very structure of the film as this sort of triptych, right? This, these three very clearly separated phases in the life of this character, which is so unique and and beautifully done. And I feel like other people have tried to do similar kinds of structural things that do not work. And it, Mm -hmm. it, it really lands in this movie. but it does take a few minutes to get into it and it doesn't really care. I mean, I I think that there's a case to be made that the structure is in there. 
like the classic three act structure in the way that we talk about the way that I'm talking about now with like inciting incident and breaking into two and midpoint. There's probably an argument to be made that that's in there. When I think back on this movie, even thinking about it right now, there's this lovely sort of melody to it where the scenes almost kind of drift and float together Mm -hmm. in my mind where, and part of that is the cinematography and just the way that the characters kind of like move and we follow different characters as well. And it's, you know, much more of a poem in, in some ways. And, and that's sometimes a disparaging word to apply to a film. But mm-hmm. in this case, I think it's a really beautiful and accurate word to, to apply to this movie. It's the shot of um, Chiron's mother, you know, Naomi Harris's character, Paula, where she's standing in the hallway mm-hmm. and the sound is down and it's the slow motion and it's the pink, it's that brilliant pink light. Mm-hmm. That is the color of it, right? Or red? Yeah, it's like a yeah, dark, dark pink kind of. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to like, yeah, recall it in my mind. But it's coming out of the bedroom. Why? I don't know. Who cares? Look at the frame. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was at that moment I was just so struck and the movie just had me in thrall. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm never, yeah. This movie is not going to let go of me. I don't want it to. I don't care. I don't. I'll, I ultimately don't care from that moment on what the plot ends up being. Yeah, I think what's interesting is I think it has traditional structure and I think it's very quiet, as you said. And, and it's sort of there's not necessarily this is the one inciting incident, but this is like the right. this sort of inciting incident that is happening to this character who is starting to realize something about himself and then has this pretty clear midpoint uh, on the beach with Kevin like that is the middle of the movie Mm -hmm. and then what I think is genius is I would argue the crisis is the reveal of black Mm. the reveal of who this character Mm. grew up to be and what he decided which choice he decided to make basically if the midpoint is you are now faced with this truth what are you going to do again it's it's you know we always talk about the John York quote but it's like the midpoint is the character gets the elixir and then what are they going to do with it? And the crisis, you know, I think in Moonlight is that he went the way we would not want him to go. And then the third section of this movie is mm-hmm. is him finally getting to where he needs to be. But I agree with you, Trisha, that especially the first time through, you're not going to notice those things. It's not, oh, man, you know, aliens kidnap my family or whatever, like this clear, <laughs> you know, thing. But I do think what's nice is the three individual sections keep the movie feeling very uh, well paced. Because, yes. um, you know, a lot of times the problem with like a slow drama is you're just watching things happen and then another scene. another. But this is like you're watching three 35 ish mm-hmm. minute segments. Each of those has several things going on. You're checking in with characters over time, but you're also revisiting characters so that you're not just feeling like you're watching three completely disparate stories. And then also just this is totally different from storytelling, but just every performance in this movie is insanely good to me. Like all oh three of the leads, like I just love so much. Mahershala is insane. And it's just, to me, it's like just watching these characters exist is mm-hmm. enough for me. But obviously mm-hmm. that's not a good storytelling lesson. Like get good actors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it like clearly uh-huh. it does yeah, no, so it much is. work. Yeah. I think that the three breaking the story up in these three segments, the, the way it does it, like we're talking about, does feel unique. And I think part of, you know, especially the first time I was watching it, I think Trisha, you and I maybe have this thing where we don't let ourselves enjoy things some of the time. <laughs> what a curse. <laughs> yes. But I was fighting that structure a little bit in, mm. in terms of like by the end of the first 
section, I was like, okay, cool. I love Mahershala Ali's character. Like, I love this relationship. I'm really excited to see where it goes. Hopefully we see a lot more of him in the rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly, oh, he's dead. Okay, that sucks. And that's a powerful choice. But now kind of the thing, like the relationship I was really into is gone. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like we're saying, it doesn't, it's not pressing like a big reset button of like, and now we're going to learn like what, what's high school. Like we're going to see a day in his life of him. And then there's going to be another little inciting incident. Like it's telling a story. It's all its beats are there, but it's done in this organic flowing way where it just feels like it hands off the baton and you don't have to start the race over. Like you very quickly understand, okay, we're still going like this is just time has passed, but we're still on that same trajectory which I think is really interesting. It was also interesting hearing that the play that it's based on uh, was not that way, that right. it's more nonlinear and jumps back and forth in time. That was one of the big decisions that Barry Jenkins made when adapting it. Yeah, the play reveals in the middle that the three characters you've been following this whole time are actually the same person at different ages, which is really which interesting. Which sounds really cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm really curious what this movie would feel like. It'd be, it'd be very different, you know, but but that is that, that would add another layer to everything but Mm -hmm. maybe not the right layer yeah right and to go back to the moment you were talking about trisha of um where you see paula and little in the hallway Mm -hmm. and she's just like yelling at him so this time i had the the screenplay open while i was Mm -hmm. uh, watching it and so i was like tracking along and that moment is in the screenplay like it's described to be you know you're not hearing what they're saying it's just like we've heard them doing something And so the screenplay is full of stuff like this. Brian, you were talking off mic about lots of different quotes that you were finding and things you were struck by in the screenplay because it is written kind of unlike any other screenplay and how it describes what's happening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I, I read the screenplay a couple of years ago. Um, I had a a pitch I was working on for Lessons from the Screenplay, which I'll talk more about in when we get to Lessons, but I wanted to read the script. It's just one of these few scripts, I, I know I mentioned it before, maybe in a Q&A or something, where I just felt like the soul of the movie was just embedded into the mm. script. And I, mm. I remembered some passages. I haven't read it in, in a couple of years, but I remembered exactly where to go to find, to pull some passages that I wanted to read. And, and it's interesting to think about because something we talk about in, in screenwriting is, is this useful to a director if a director is going to take your script and make right. it? If you're, if you're like, you know, uh, the, the building has been here for 30 years or something like that. It's like, well, that doesn't really help me. Um, but, uh, but also, is, is it evoking something out of the reader? And, and I think the perfect marriage of those two things is, is it evoking something from the reader that also gives the, the, the director, the set designer, the costume, anybody, a clear directive of what you are trying to evoke? Even if it's not, she's wearing a green dress, it's, this is a mood I'm trying to convey. I'm going to put that into my script so that you know doesn't matter what color this thing is. What matters is this is what this scene is trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I have three pretty short ones that I that I uh, pulled here. The first is describing the school when when uh, he first gets to school. It says this building did not exist a decade ago. Its older, decrepit predecessor demolished and replaced with this vision built most in the image of a prison. 
constructed by the same money and resources used to erect those spaces and ultimately with the same intention to keep all who enter watched and in. So again, it's like how, you know, he's making the script to direct himself, obviously. So he he can do some of this stuff, but it's like, you know, you hand that over to like the, the production designer and say, go make that building. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yep. tricky, but at the same time, you, you've just communicated so much about what this world is. Mm-hmm. And then another very tricky one is, as I mentioned, something that I noticed the first time I watched the movie is that little wrestling session with Kevin. It's, it's pretty mm-hmm. simple and it's pretty subtle, but it's describing it. Uh, and then the next, after it sort of describes what they're doing, the next paragraph is, these are children. Sexuality is absent these images, and yet the hints of something sensual fleeting in its appearances. Kevin's cheek wedged close to Little's neck, blades of grass sticking to their skin. So again, just sort of like they don't know that this is happening, but we get a sense of it. And like, that's exactly how I felt when I watched the movie wow. for the right. first time. Yeah. Finally, this is my favorite one. It is, it's a thing you might even not remember if you've only seen the movie once or twice. But when you've read the script, it's suddenly watching the movie again. It makes this little snippet feel so much more powerful. It's just a little scene, I think, in the... I don't even remember where it is structurally, but it's but it's towards the end where you just see some kids playing in the water for a little bit and then the, the movie moves, moves on. But the script says, a muted wide base to the light, waves rushing onto shore under the watch of a full moon. There are children at play, a dozen at vari- various ages, all black, seven to 15 years old. None of them in proper trunks, most in homemade cutoffs, shorts, and Fruit of the Loom white tank tops. All laughing as the waves rush at their feet, a few feigning fear at the ocean as others, the boys mostly, drag them into the surf. We watch the children play a moment longer. We've seen none of these kids before. We'll see none of them again. Damn, Barry Jenkins. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got this whole, you know, this whole water motif obviously going throughout the movie and Mm -hmm. what water Mm -hmm. means for little and what water means for this whole transformation. And what do we have here is just this little snippet of of kids enjoying themselves, being themselves in water. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that we uh, that we just see for a moment and then we leave and and again it's just like when you see it in the movie you don't the the we'll never see them again doesn't land because you don't know that obviously but when you read it in the script it's like oh okay now I need to go back and reread that paragraph to see like what it was saying to me mm-hmm. well it's interesting because I think you know especially in film school or when you read screenwriting how to books there was an idea drilled into my head at least that was you know only right things that you can see and like right. what can the director put in the frame and and it's like yeah that makes sense and i think that's a good rule of thumb you don't want to be writing a novel you know with a bunch of internal monologues and right. prose that is irrelevant to the art of filmmaking but at the same time it's really important you know one to get your screenplay sold and just to to communicate the ineffable things you know if if you have a vision for this film like you're, not everything's going to be communicated with like just descriptions of objects and i think it's really it's important not to be too rigid about that. I think if you can find those poetic ways to like quickly and briefly communicate a feeling in this way, that is really valuable. Yeah. Well, so much of writing action in screenwriting is selecting the most vivid and relevant and evocative details to put on the page to communicate what the essence of a scene is. Right. And so in the the last section that you just read, Brian, the part about the moon watching over the children mm. is the part that I, it's a personification. It's, it's actual like, you know, imagery. It's like poetic imagery personifying the moon as it watches over the children. If the name of your movie is Moonlight, mm-hmm. it's incredibly appropriate. It also captures the 
mood of what the moonlight, the actual, you know, object of the moon is doing in the scene, right? It's imparting Mm -hmm. a safety. If there's a parental figure like the moon that is watching over the children, that is creating a sense of safety. You know, a moonlit scene by the water could also convey danger Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. easily, Mm -hmm. but you don't want it to. So you're selecting again and creating this sense in the reader of how the scene feels when you watch it which is a little hard to pin down, but using poetic language is very effective in that sense. I remember something that a mentor said to me one time about writing, which is if you're a writer, then you're writing things for people to read. So your screenplay better be a hell of a read. Yeah, right. Exactly. I haven't actually read, sat down and read Moonlight, the screenplay front to back, but now I really want to because it sounds like I it's a hell recommend of a read. It. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I feel like it, it matches the mode of filmmaking than very much you're aiming to do with exactly. this project. And again, that's why this is a, a thing that a director can get away with if they know that if they're they gonna... are the writer or director. Right. right. Like if it, that's a, a slightly different context, but I think that's also a situation where it's it's perfect, where this this is not a plot-based movie where it's like every page you're like, who's gonna say what like what's gonna happen and who's gonna stab like it's all about the subtext and reading between the lines and the mood and the feeling does so much of that because the characters say so little mm-hmm. that it, the, the tone and the mood is important for telling the story and conveying the meaning. So I think it makes total sense to, to have it. And yeah, it was delightful to just have the screenplay next to it. And anytime you want to do that. I think it's a good idea. It's always fascinating to be reading the script while watching it and saying, okay, what, what was there in the script? What got changed just as like a filmmaking meta thing. That's always really interesting, but it was strangely like it, it enhanced the mood for me, like yeah. reading it mm. while watching it because they pair so nicely together. And so much of that seemingly inevitable things like you're saying brian like that moment after the kids are like wrestling like somehow what he wrote is conveyed on screen and that's extremely impressive yeah in some ways i mean that that scene with the kids playing and wrestling and stuff that the way it was shot and i think it was even kind of like classical music over it the is first music part of it. i was gonna mm-hmm. say that yeah it's so uh, it's like terrence malick and, and very it, yeah. much <laughs> i was gonna say that too yeah i think that scene i was like this is so terrence malick which i love and you know his screenplays are not even screenplays. Like no. his, you know, <laughs> he just write, he writes a long poem, and he's like, "Let's go play around with you know the butterflies and see what happens." Yeah, <laughs> I love the influences that you can feel uh, Barry Jenkins drawing from, and you know another big influence I really felt was uh, Wong Kar Wai, especially mm. in in like the third act in the in the third section. Mm-hmm. It, it felt very like in the mood for love, or you know just just the those kind of moody slow vibey pieces that that one car Wai puts together i could just tell barry jenkins has a love for cinema and, and i could i could mm-hmm. feel him drawing from his favorite movies and kind of putting it all into this one package a word that we often use when we're talking about romance is the word sensual which mm-hmm. you know in its literal meaning just conveys of the senses right what you can see and taste and touch and hear and smell I think that it's interesting that those are ideas of like romanticism and our senses are linked because there's something very elemental 
about the way that we experience like romance. So one of the things that is a challenge of this kind of story is that the life of your character, basically their internal, deeply, deeply buried (laughs) internal life is the arc of your plot, right? Mm -hmm. There, there, (laughs) There is no plot outside of the arc of this character's internal struggle. Yeah. So right. how do you convey that? How do you bring that out? And by focusing on what is sensual, what can be touched and experienced with your senses is a really smart way to approach that. And that's what makes Terrence Malick films and films like this feel like there's plot happening when there isn't. It's like in a Terrence Malick mm-hmm. movie, it's a character walking in a field and just sort of like touching grains yeah. of wheat. And you're like, yeah, that's or that's just like, throwing their arms open to a horizon. You're like, yes. For an hour. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. But. But I agree. It's effective. Yes, it is. It is embracing that, you know, the making manifest the internal character by like bringing in these elements. And and a lot of those things are natural motifs, as you point out, Brian, with the Mm -hmm. water, which we could get into more, right? Which is is very clearly present here. But yeah, it is. We experience our inner lives with our senses as well. And so focusing, hyper-focusing in this movie on those in a really beautiful way makes us feel like there's plot happening. Because there is, but it's just, it's very hard to see. So we have to look very closely to see it. Yeah. And another thing I I appreciated about the film this time that I think maybe I'd, I'd forgotten the amount of work it does to achieve this, but it's also like a sociological story. Like it's it's Very not much. just about Chiron and how he transforms, but it's about how anyone from this place could end up like this. Like it's about how right. you are socialized mm-hmm. to behave. And I feel like it does that just really well in a way that feels effortless. And the first time it kind of struck me in this in this watch is in the scene that like precedes the moment we were talking about earlier where Paula's yelling at Little right in the hallway where Mahershala Ali's character, one, you know, sells drugs, but also knows that he like he's taking care of Little and like his mom has this drug problem mm-hmm. and then realizes that he's selling the drugs to his mom and she confronts him about that. And so it's just this immediately intractable situation where you just completely get, oh, this is a cycle and it can't like be broken easily at all. Like he has to make money. She has this problem. Like the the child is caught in the middle and that child when socialized becomes want, like you just, you see it all in yeah. that moment. And I was just really struck by that and really appreciate that. And I think that's ultimately what makes this movie like extra powerful for me is that it, mm-hmm. it does show how anyone can end up and does end up in the places that they do. And there's just so much empathy for all the people in the mm-hmm. story, which I just really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a dimensionality to to so much of this story and these characters. Um, you know, Alex, you were talking about how this could have been a gritty story uh, or sort of like the style could have just been just gritty and like, look how hyper-realist it is. And, and obviously, Barry Jenkins said, I don't want to do that. There's a great quote I pulled from a, um, a review that said, uh, the characters operate in an urban working-class city in Florida 
but are portrayed through art house conventions to create a new space for black characters in cinema. Yep. And of course, th- that works for for a couple different ways. One, it does that w- what that quote just said, you know, you have Juan who you could just be like, he's the drug dealer, he's this guy. And the first thing we see him do is go after after Little and take him in and and care mm-hmm. for him and say I I genuinely want to to you know, to make sure this kid is okay. But also I'm a drug dealer and I'm going to keep doing that. But then also it does a thematic thing where the the character of Chiron is he is not seeing the world the way that everyone around him is. By which I mean, if we were watching uh, Juan's movie, you know, even like the opening, the cinematography, of that opening shot with Juan is like doing the bad boys spin around kind of thing. Like, <laughs> like, look how like this is what kind of movie we're in. But then when you're in Chiron's perspective, you get a lot more of the orchestral music and and this kind of thing and it's this is a character who is not part of this very one-dimensional way that this world can be and is a lot for a lot of these characters right chiron is not that and he is sort of trying Mm -hmm. to escape it he is seeing things in a different way and the the filmmaking itself and the music choices and everything is all operating to convey that to us as well well it reminds me of when we were talking about eternal sunshine and we talked about paradox and how yeah. leaning into paradox and embracing paradox, where things feel like they shouldn't be able to coexist and yet they do, right. that creates that sense of complexity and dimensionality that ultimately conveys maturity. When things are flattened down and simplified, they can be really enjoyable, but they tend not to stick in us the way that more mature and more complex things do. And paradox is a way to access that complexity. One of the things that I was kind of trying to get at earlier that never leaves me about this movie is the juxtaposition of natural spaces and urban spaces, where it feels like things are all concrete and buildings and streets and, and cars and, you know, the, the institutional school that feels like a prison mm-hmm. where it's all this like sort of man-made, you know, um, sort of urban jungle kind of thing to it. There's also this movie really leans into the natural spaces where even something like the football green, where the kids are playing soccer um, and there's grass there. But then, of course, the beach and the water and things like that, where there's this sort of baptism scene that we see over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so the movie is doing that with the spaces in the same way that Eternal Sunshine kind of does, where in the settings we see paradox and we see that here in Moonlight, too, where it creates that complexity that dimensionality you're talking about brian i think again this the nuance that we're talking about here is just throughout the movie like yeah i just keep coming back to the word empathy and maybe it's because barry jenkins uses that a lot when he's talking about it in interviews Mm -hmm. but even in that that first scene where we see juan and he's checking in with his guy that's running the place where they're like dealing drugs like that the portrayal of even that moment has Uh nuance to it like it's Mm -hmm. not a one-dimensional like these are drug dealers. You feel this way about <laughs> right. the drug dealers. Like it's <laughs> like they're people and there's like, there's more happening to it than that. And I think that's, you know, obviously there's a lot of semi-autobiographical stuff in this. Mm-hmm. And like Barry Jenkins grew up in this neighborhood. Tarov and McCraney also did. They didn't know each other, but they were kind of from a similar place. Right. Both had moms that had addiction problems. So like had this firsthand experience with the nuance of all of that. Mm-hmm. But I also love just that it's we're kind of like you were just referring to a minute ago, Brian, like it's a portrayal of like black 
men that we don't get to see. Yeah. And like it's it's in a space that we often see black men in, but not in a full three-dimensional representation. And I feel like especially it hits me in that third section where we see him as black and he's like kind of he's become one. He's in that role that we're more familiar with seeing black men in in media. But the story and the actor and and part of why that the, the tension in that final scene is like you see so much vulnerability like right yeah. beneath it. Like yeah. you see the humanity that's just had to be shoved down literally in order to survive. Yeah. And I feel like no other film have I seen that like captures that so mm-hmm. intensely. Yeah. I I mean I have to really quickly mention Trevante Rhodes, like his performance yeah. in the third section. It's like I don't know how he is so hard and so sensitive at the same time mm. with the same look. You know, you mm-hmm. you open with him as Juan 2.0, basically. And the first thing you do is you see him flex his power, something that we've seen done right. against him the whole time when he says, oh, the count is off and everything. But then, you know, especially when he gets the call from Kevin, like he is just this puppy dog who is just looking for <laughs> guidance and is just mm-hmm. there, you know, and the one line that I don't even know if I even heard the line the first two times, which uh, what Kevin says when they're one of the last lines of the film, basically, they're just kind of hanging out back in Kevin's mm-hmm. apartment talking. And Kevin just sort of says, like, yeah, we hear Chiron. Like, just like, right. you know, Kevin is yeah. sort of like, I am comfortable with this. And and yeah, but but you have you have come through to the other side of your arc, basically, and you are <laughs> here and like, I am here to take care of you. And then obviously you have the 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 final final scene. But yeah, just the the, the dialogue is amazing. Obviously, so much subtext and so much boiling beneath the surface. But I think it was just specifically Trevante Rhodes performance that just made me go like, what is happening right now like i'm like yeah. elevated to some other place yeah it is utterly crazy to me that these three actors did not meet each other mm. did not talk right. to each other or in any way discuss their performances and yet they're so similar in the way that they carry themselves yeah and like yeah the physicality and the way that they embody this same character that feels utterly believable and it's eerie almost watching the three performances in a row where you're just like this is definitely the same person again to hang a story where the only plot is the inner life of this (laughs) one character on three different actors and you don't let them meet each other or like imitate each other or work on the same character together at all what a brave choice and i don't know how or why it works it's astounding (laughs) (laughs) it's incredible it's a miracle yeah well and it's really interesting watching interviews with with barry jenkins talk about that process of like yeah it, it like you're saying it's such a bold choice and he kind of just said that you know he was mostly just looking for people that had the same soul like if you look Mm. in their eyes they have the same soul and he references i think a a book by walter murch if i'm not mistaken about like blinking that eyes are the windows to the soul Mm -hmm. and so anytime you're cutting away from a character you're severing a connection between the audience and so he was just very conscious of that and there are other stylistic choices that you see in this film where suddenly you're you're looking directly at a character and they're looking directly at you Mm -hmm. and he uses that a lot and if beale street could talk also Mm -hmm. so yeah he seems like he was very just mostly cared about that and just like when you look at them they need to have the same soul the same eyes 
because he has changed. He is a totally different person. So like, I'm not going to, as far as how he appears to the world. So it's kind of, it's kind of a shocking reveal. It you know, is. Yeah, yeah. The third part, it's like, whoa, what happened? Oh, yeah. yeah. He's not the skinny kid anymore. He, yeah. like, he has this whole different physicality until, like you're saying, Brian, those moments where suddenly you see and it's like, oh, that's like little still in there. Right. Mm-hmm. You can see all the way through the different different layers of him. Another thing that speaks to that is the poster, which I didn't even realize was three different people when right. I first saw yeah. that right. poster. Because it's just, it's first, it's just well made, obviously, but also it's right. just three characters who feel like they're the same person, even though it's like a six year old and a twenty five. <laughs> right. When you yeah. actually look, it's like, oh yeah, they're very different, but right. they feel like the same person. Part of my first viewing experience, my mind at first went to the thought of like, oh, they kind of screwed up with the casting of like this final actor because like he does look too different, hmm. you know. The kid and the teenager were so perfectly like I could see how one became the other so immediately what happened here. And then you realize that this is part of the text. This is part of what is the point. He has transformed himself to this almost unrecognizable place from his childhood self. And so then then it makes perfect sense. And the magic of it is you see in his eyes, you see in the performance as he starts to open up near the end. Oh, this is the same kid. Wow. So yeah, it was an interesting experience to go on that journey of thinking they messed up at first and then realizing, right. no, 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 this is the point. Well, that's another of those moments where the the filmmaking is doing that too, where right. you see him in the car, you see his fronts. Uh, there's like yeah. a camera like strapped to the door. It's doing like, look <laughs> right. at our gritty realistic yeah. filmmaking. And of course the music is like hard and everything. So it's that sort of like very clearly the film wants you to feel completely you know, jarred. And again, that's why I think it's like a beautiful crisis, basically just the, right. rev- the uh, literally the crisis is just, here's who this character is now. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> what we're, that's what we're telling you. Yeah. It's really interesting that this is a movie where because of its genre, you know, it's doing this very serious, dramatic, like I said, poetic story where it's, it's almost more like a novel in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. I said it's like a poem, but I don't actually think that's fair. It really is more like a novel where we get so hooked into the character. And I think the POV is really interesting, too, because it doesn't always stay with Chiron. Like, right. we do get scenes where he's not in it. Mm-hmm. So I think the POV is interesting. But there's really mostly an omniscient narrator that is is focused on this character in the same way that a novel character in a novel, you might have a third person omniscient narrator, but we're really in the head of the main character. I think it's really fascinating that the suspense is able to be maintained of, I do not know what will happen to Chiron. Right. And I do not know what he will choose at any moment. And I think Mm. that's what carries that third act. Because when we jump in and we see he's made some serious decisions, Mm -hmm. right? Because we know that once he breaks that chair across that kid's back, we're like, ah, you're in trouble. Like, you're in real trouble now. And, you know, you think the world was not kind to you before. Well, I mean, it's, it's all of a piece, right? Where it's like, the world was not kind to you before. The world is going to continue to be unkind to you. Yeah, right. um, it will punish you for reacting to the unkindness that you experienced. Right. It's a cycle. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. a cycle. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, blaming the character for that decision. Of course. Yeah. But we know right there that there's a breaking point and there's more choices, really, really hard choices that he's going to be faced with. And so when it cuts back in and we meet the character, you know, in the third section, we meet Black and we realize how what he's done to survive this far, Mm -hmm. you know, what he's made himself into to survive. 
I never at any moment know how it's going to turn out. The suspense is real because the tension is real the entire time. This is ultimately a story of what does a person have to do to survive in a world like this? And it doesn't have any easy answer. So I never know what the answer is going to be. And ultimately, I think that's what keeps me riveted in this movie. I also realized along those lines, I never considered this before, the character names of the three characters are actually following a thematic arc as well. Of course. Little is the name given to him that he doesn't want. Mm -hmm. Sharon is his real name, which he has during his crossroads. Which choice are you going to make? Black is the name he gives himself when he is wearing this mask, but it's the name given to him by Kevin. So it's sort of this interesting, mm-hmm. you know, again, it, it has this dichotomy to it of, of I don't want to be my true self, but also I, I do desperately that I can't sort of, I can't get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think I clocked that either the first time. And when I realized that this time I was like, oh, that's huge. Like that's yeah, such yeah, yeah. an important of part of like, like you're saying, he has all these fronts. He's like showing the world how he wants the world to perceive him. But his name is this thing. So like that's the little bit of like the nugget where like, you know, he's still in there and like this thing still has meaning. We've talked about the performances, but it's worth talking about again. I feel like in that final scene, I feel like Andre Holland, who plays Mm -hmm. Kevin, Mm -hmm. is doing so much work also. He's so great. Yeah. And how he's also able to embody this person that is confident, but doesn't feel like he's you know, not of the world. Like he doesn't feel like he's just like some completely changed new perfect human that's emerged. That's like, this is the ideal that you should now be. Like you believe that he's still that same kid, but that he's grown and matured in these ways and how he just like holds the space for black to like, like he doesn't push, he doesn't pull. It's just like, yeah, I'm here. And yeah, it's just like, it's, the finesse of like creating like the right amount of space to allow Chiron to like become a person again. is just, it's Mm -hmm. really amazing to watch. Right. And and that's another character where we see that dimensionality where it's like, he could have, Mm -hmm. they could have been, you know, he's like, I moved to a liberal city, you know, now I live with my partner and like come and have dinner with us and you know, whatever. Instead it's like, I'm very comfortable with who I am in my life. Also, I have a wife and a kid, and like I, so like in the text, he has an ex and a kid. Yeah, he's not married. Yeah, I was gonna say, hey, no. (laughs) (laughs) But sort of this sense of of just like he is, it's not, it's not one dimensional. It's complicated, you know. And uh, but then, as you were saying, Michael, that's also an Andre Holland's performance where he feels very comfortable, but also he feels he has this sensitivity that is just like oozing out of him too. Well, and that and that whole third sequence, it, once again, like you said, Brian, there's people that are like, this movie's so boring. And they're just sitting in this diner for 25 mm-hmm. minutes. What are they even doing? It's the payoff for for learning the language of this movie and for for being mm-hmm. drawn into the inner life of this main character. When you are there and in the headspace, that's where Andre Holland's performance is like electric because yeah. every time he flashes a smile, it's like a huge mm-hmm. deal. And you're like heart palpitates. and. Mm. <laughs> It's it's really amazing. You know, it was my frustration with the film on the first viewing, but on this viewing, it was my appreciation of the film was you kept it so sparse and so spare, and you had Chiron go to this place where he was so closed in on himself. 
that it gave so much power to the tiniest moments in this finale where you're just hanging on every word, every motion, every movement, every facial expression. That's a very special kind of filmmaking that you can only really earn by having the kind of restraint throughout your film to to build to a point where the audience is is leaning on every every single thing. Yeah. And Andre Holland, because he's such a breath of fresh air and because mm. he has this lightness about him that's so missing in so many other parts of the film, it's like this relief and this and this energy and this excitement it was all flooding in while at the same time being an extremely quiet and slow, you know, calm scene <laughs> on the <laughs> surface. But underneath and you're you're there as the audience feeling like huge amounts of energy coming out of this quiet scene. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of earlier in the movie when you have Juan there, Mahershala Ali's character, and he feels like a safe place or he feels like he knows exactly how to unlock, you know, Chiron and and make him feel like he can be himself. Mm -hmm. We see that from Andre Holland as well in a totally different way where mm -hmm. there needs to be a lightness. There needs to be like, hey, man, there's not pressure on this. I just want you to be able to be yourself here, eat your dinner. You're okay. Like you're okay to be you or be whatever you want to be around me in the same way that we see that like sort of safety, you know, from the Juan character in the first section of the, the film. It's really interesting that there isn't a safe place in the middle of the movie. Mm. Well, there a little bit with Teresa. A little yeah. bit with Teresa, but there's so little safety right. that, you know, the middle movie, middle part of the movie kind of becomes the crucible the character passes through. And then there are these like sort of, you know, safety bookends from the different um, supporting characters on either side. But it also reminds me that I said that this is like the whole movie hangs on, on Chiron's arc and it kind of does. But the other characters do have arcs as well. You know, and particularly Kevin has an arc as well. And and also Paula. Of course, right. yeah. Has an arc in this movie. And so I think that that creates the empathy piece that you keep returning to, Michael, where we are tracking with Chiron, you know, as much as we possibly can. That's who we're kind of clinging to. But we also want to see transformation from the other characters. And so that also keeps us hanging on every word they say. So in the third section, Paula, I'm like, Paula, please tell me you have something to say in this scene. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. Please tell me you're here and you're present in a different way um, in Chiron's life. And and so I think, yeah, we also have that to kind of cling to or or there's suspense, right? Hmm. There's still these other characters we care about that helps us track through the whole movie um, and keeps us, yeah, wondering what's going to happen next. And uh, yeah, I think it's important that it's that Paula is the one character that is ever present and mm -hmm. the one actor that is ever present right. and like that being yeah. his mom. Like, I think that that does give you enough of like a through line to kind of hold on to the whole time and, and does make that make it mean something then like extra. I think when you, mm -hmm. when you have that final scene with them, which I think if I'm not mistaken in the script is, is kind of in a in, uh, different order. Like mm -hmm. I think that happens before the call. I don't know. There's something about the order of the final section of when Kevin calls versus like the other stuff that we see black doing. And I think they changed it in the edit so that I think the call comes earlier. Oh, cool. I think that adds a really interesting dimension then to when you're seeing black talk to his mom and all these other things. Like mm. there's by giving it that context, it kind of infuses, you know, his headspace a little bit with like something's opened up from getting this call. Yeah. Right. You can, think that like, okay, maybe he's pondering these things and that's why some of these actions are happening when they might not have 
before. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What what we were just saying um, about the diner scene was kind of the the main lesson, the main takeaway that I was thinking about when watching this in terms of, like you were saying, Alex, the, the payoff of the language of the film and how having a, a story that is so meticulous about the details and what it shows you and the characters' actions and when they happen, that if you've gotten the audience to tune into those things, you can have an extremely tense scene with very little action. And it was reminding me of Inglorious Bastards. And hmm. you know, there's several scenes in Inglorious Bastards, but you know, that opening scene. And part of this was I watched a interview with Andre Holland and Trevante Rhodes. Mm-hmm. And even their dynamic as actors, I think, was interesting because Trevante Rhodes is had kind of just started acting. And this was sort of like a, you know, he'd been doing it for three years, I think. And this was his first big thing. So mm-hmm. he was like over the moon, super excited, but kind of like green and inexperienced. Andre Holland has done lots of like theater and has lots of experience and stuff. And so I feel like that, you know, just that dynamic between them, I think also informs some of the tension of those two characters of the one character who is confident and has figured out their life and the other one who is still trying to figure out where they're going. Yes. I mean, I think that I I really love... um... Andre Holland's performance. I also think, though, Jarrell Jerome, um, who plays the teenage version of Kevin, Mm -hmm. also really informs how we read Kevin later in the movie. For sure. Where we see that there's, you know, he makes some very difficult and painful choices, painful to both him and to Chiron in the middle Mm -hmm. of the movie. And we kind of see the regret, right? And the, like, you know, instantly when you see him as he's like watching Chiron get arrested and put in that cop car at the end of the second section, you know that he understands that he's partly responsible for that or yeah. even mostly responsible for that and that he's going to make hopefully different choices going forward. Like it feels like a turning point as the camera lingers on Jarrell Jerome at the end of that section. And so that I think is a big part of the reason we understand who adult Kevin is. Because we see like, oh, he's going a different way now, probably. He's not going to give into peer pressure in the same way that he probably did. The way that we see that he definitely did, he probably won't do that in the future. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and also the, me talking about the actual actors is, you know, inferring things not to be reductive. Both of their performances are great, no mm-hmm. matter what their, you know, experience yeah. is. But ultimately, yeah, the, the point being that it's as someone that is currently trying to write a thing where this is the case. I really appreciated how the film was able to accomplish so much drama through so little. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a clear sign of excellent work being done. This will contrast with my, what am I watching, which we'll talk about in a little mm-hmm. bit, but it, I feel like <laughs> it made me very much appreciate the the craft that goes into extended quiet moments being like the most compelling thing sometimes superseding expensive, big, loud moments, et cetera, et cetera. Did you see F9? I didn't. I still haven't seen <laughs> F9, but that might apply to that too. This is certainly worse than that. We'll talk about it. Trisha, what's your lesson? I was struck again watching it this time by where the movie chooses to open, which is not with our main character. Right. Mm. So the movie actually opens with Juan. And as you mentioned earlier, Michael, he like the first five, 10 minutes of it is just him kind of, you know, out on the 
street where he's, I guess that's like part of his domain, right? As a drug dealer. And he's got somebody standing out in front of this apartment complex and he goes out and talks to him. And, you know, there's somebody on the street who's like trying to get something for free or whatever. And, and it's funny, we return back to that scene later, of course, with that really powerful scene between Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris Mm -hmm. and where there's that crazy argument about who's going to raise her son. But I think it's really beautiful to thematically to open the movie there because ultimately the movie chooses to do something thematic in the opening sequence rather than doing a character thing with Chiron. So, you know, to me, this is a movie about survival and how, you know, sort of survival in itself is resistance, even though it comes at a cost. And so the socialization piece that you mentioned earlier, Michael, is the theme, like the forces that are trying to kill Chiron all the time, right? The toxic masculinity and homophobia and this entire system that is trying to keep him from being himself and keep him from loving who he loves and you know, even existing, really, ultimately. Yeah. So starting with a scene that is kind of about what Juan has done to survive, mm. which of course becomes important framework later, Mm-hmm. I think is really interesting and really smart because it adjusts, it creates the world in an instant, but it also adjusts our expectations. And then of course we cut right from that scene to the kids come running through, the boys are chasing Chiron. Yeah. There's the scene, it's bullying right out of the gate. Um, and then he has to hide in a, a drug house, right? Essentially, or like in this apartment building that is is abandoned, um, but there's like needles and stuff in there. The opening of the movie is just a super strong, it kind of encapsulates the entire world and encapsulates all the characters' journeys. The world that built Juan, the world that is trying to kill Chiron, Mm. um, and that has shaped all the rest of the characters. And it gives us that, it gives us everything we need to know going into the movie. Yeah, it's really good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Alex, what's your lesson? Kind of going off of what you said earlier, Michael, about the sociological storytelling there was a, a single cut in the movie that really struck me this time. So I think one of the most wrenching scenes in the whole film is the scene where uh, Sharon comes home when he's a teenager. His mom greets him kind of like warmly at first and like, oh, you're home. And right. And then it just escalates and devolves and gets so sad and just heart wrenching when she's just begging him for money, demanding money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when she gets it, she's kind of like, is out, you know, like, like, that's really what she wanted the whole time. She wasn't ever there for him. And so and you you end with everyone just like kind of hugging his backpack in this just state of despondency. And then we cut to the middle of science class and you and the sound in the sound design, you can hear the teacher saying like multicellular organisms have like mitochondria and, mm-hmm. and it just the absurdity of it suddenly hits you like mm-hmm. this kid is supposed to be learning about mitochondria right now and like right. care about that. And it's supposed to be like a thing that you do in like with a, like a clear head and focus when at home that's what's happening. And it's just such a without ever like saying that out loud, the movie just shows you in a single cut. Yeah. The absurdity of that expectation of this circumstance and this circumstance put together make any sense. And so I just, I loved that cut and I just thought it was a brilliant, it was a brilliant uh, move. And it, mm-hmm. it was just part of that overall sociological storytelling, which is not just about this one character, but about a system and a time and a time and a place and everything. Yeah. 
that one hit me this time too. And I was like, oh, mm. damn. Wow. Yeah, you just <laughs> did that with just like that one cut. Like, wow. That's... Just like he- hearing a science teacher do his job well, talk about science, like never right. hurt so much, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the previous scene is so sad because that's like the one time you see Paula, yeah, like warm and nice. And there's like a couple lines of her being like, yeah, well, I missed blah, blah, blah. So I locked myself out. Like, do you have the key? Mm-hmm. And it's just yeah. like, it's like the slow the sinking. sinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, Ashton Sanders's face. Mm-hmm. Um, he's so good. Yeah. While he's on the phone with her too. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Devastating. Brian, what's your lesson? The pitch that I was coming up with for lessons from the screenplay video, which I never quite concretized, but there was there was a kernel there, was uh, Moonlight versus Roma, mm. uh, which were um, a- another one of my favorite films of, of the past decade. And they're so obviously very different movies, but they're both these quiet dramas that are told in this larger than life kind of artistic mm. filmmaking style that make them feel just on a filmmaking level, make them feel big. They both use water as this motif that the protagonist has to engage with. Sometimes the water is helpful. Sometimes the water is the thing, you know, that that um, that she needs to face at the end of Roma. And so it's the ongoing motif. But the thing that I thought about the most was they're both about a silent character, not a, you know, completely silent character, but a, a relatively silent character whose climax and completion of their character arc is simply admitting something they've never admitted before. Mm. just mm. saying something out loud that they've either never said to themselves or never said to something else. You know, in Roma, it's the scene after the beach, the kids, if you haven't seen Roma, I won't say anything, but she, she says something that's sort of the first time that you realize she maybe has never thought this before. And then of course, in Moonlight, it's, um, it's, you know, you're the only man who's ever touched me. The only one I haven't really ever touched anyone since. And, you know, you can tell that he hasn't, thought about that in a long time or if he has he hasn't sort of let himself fully engage with that that thought and as you were saying michael just you know writing when your own screenwriting i just wrote a script which you guys read uh where a character is sort of the last image of the script is a character just going climbing into bed and smiling and hopefully if you're along for that ride then you're like that little moment is so meaningful because of what this character needs in her life and etc etc So yeah, as Trisha was saying, the internal journey is the plot. So you have to focus on that and you have to make that what even the scenes that are other than that opening scene, I think almost every scene that isn't about Chiron doesn't include Chiron is about Chiron. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Terrell telling Kevin like, oh, you're going to go hit someone later or obviously the scene between Juan and Paula. So and if you make us feel how important and heavy that struggle is that this character is dealing with then even something as simple as a character just saying something out loud or smiling or just having the smallest little, I'm on this journey now, or I've completed this journey now, or I'm on this new journey now, put it that way, um, is is so meaningful. The original script actually ends with more of a confirmation that Chiron and Kevin do get together at the end, but we don't need it. You know, it, all we need to know, it, all we need to hear is him say that you end on that beautiful shot of of Kevin just sort of caressing uh, um, Chiron and then of course you have the, the final shot of the movie of, of Little looking back at the camera but that's all you need to to tell us that that <laughs> this thing that's been bubbling for the past two hours basically is finally released and you can go home and and feel feel better about the state of this character that you've spent so much time rooting for mm-hmm. I love the Roma comparison because it I never thought about that how yeah both movies it's the characters saying out loud a thing that they have re- essentially repressed, maybe, you know, right. and 
exactly. It takes like a big event in their lives. I mean, for for Sharon, this is a big event. His meeting up with Kevin again. It takes this kind of like emotionally triggering event to to suddenly make them admit out loud this thing they have been avoiding or not thinking about. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that is how humans work actually uh yeah, so, right. so how beautiful to find a way to like tell that story through a movie which normally yeah. would would seem too small or boring exactly. or something mm-hmm. exactly right exactly what you said there alex in real life that's the hardest thing like yes. a person right. admitting the thing they're the most scared of yeah. is like that is a huge deal and so yeah i think that's a really beautiful point you make there brian that the movies that do feel epic despite being kind of small and quiet partially feel that way because that little thing for an actual person to change is epic that's you know Mm -hmm. that is earth shattering right Mm -hmm. unlike the tomorrow war which i watched on (laughs) amazon prime you watched the tomorrow war (laughs) wow wow everybody first of all what a segue yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've like some of my friends watched it and were like, Have you seen it? We need to talk to you about it. And oh, I was like, no. no. And they were like, Okay, can you see it though? Because we need to talk to you about it. At the time of this recording, I've not yet talked to them about it, mm. but I think they had like time travel y questions. But it was just such a weird goddamn movie. <laughs> you spent two hours of your precious life on God's green earth. Two hours and 18 minutes. Wow. No. And you feel all of it. Like, it's such a fascinating... It's just really fascinating. Like, if it were slightly better or worse, I would actually recommend people check it out just for the curiosity of, like, how does a movie like this get made? The visual effects are at times awful and at times really impressive. Like, Amazon clearly has money that they spent. It looks like a huge movie when mm-hmm. I've seen the trailers. Like, how is this not a big theater movie? Right. I guess like, because of what it is. <laughs> the scale and scope uh, is just like it relative to the plot sense making and character goodness. Like, it's just, it's. <laughs> We're in a weird streaming world, man. Yeah. Wow. And th- <laughs> this is like the epitome of that. Weird streaming world created this thing called The Tomorrow War, which is apparently a movie. Time travel, <laughs> like, dear God, I just the way they do it, it's so frustrating. Um, anyway, so sorry if you loved it, but listen, Yvonne Stravowski looks like Miranda from Mass Effect 2 in it, so I want it to be good, <laughs> right? And she's get, like, there are good things in it, like the the girl that plays Chris Pratt's daughter in it is great, and I was like, oh, you're such like you are being wasted, child. Like you, child, are better than this movie. Like you're so good, you child. So they're better than this movie. <laughs> there are a lot of impressive J.K. Simmons in it, but also it's so bad. It's it was just, <laughs> just a very fascinating watch. Um, wow, and very much not Moonlight. So uh, anyway, the Tomorrow War. Available on Amazon Prime. Wow, off to a running start on the what am I watching? (laughs) Alex, what have you been watching? I've been re-watching Dark Season 3. because Alex, you can't do Dark every time. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) I'm caught in a loop. It's an infinite loop. (laughs) I knew it. No, it's because I watched the first two seasons twice. I watched them once when I first saw them. Then I watched them again in preparation for Season 3, like to like go right in Season 3 after them. And I had not watched season three twice. Season three was the hardest to follow, made the least sense, was the most off the rails. And I am not done rewatching it. But watching the first half of it again has been rewarding for somebody who cares about Dark because you see 
you know, if you know where it ends and the kind of choice it makes at the end, that is there from the beginning of the season. And it is rewarding to go back and revisit that if you care about Dark, if you're obsessed with time travel like I am. Uh, so if you were befuddled by Dark Season 3, liked the show overall, uh, and want to get more out of it still, Season 3 is worth a rewatch Watch if, you it care, <laughs> if you care enough. Like I do. And then listen to our podcast about it. Listen to our podcast about we it. We did a whole podcast. We did about do. It. Alex made me watch the whole thing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Trisha will never forgive me. <laughs> I was thinking about that during the Tomorrow War because, like, again, their choice about timeline, like time travel stuff is like, okay, like, I can go with it and pretty solid. And then at some point, they're just like, they put it into a nice little ball. And they just throw it out the window as hard as it's like <laughs> as they can. And it's just so frustrating. Time travel's hard. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay, cool. Uh, Trisha, Brian, anything time travel related? Trisha, what have, what have you been watching? So I watched Luca, mm. um, which is the new Disney Pixar out on Disney+. Plus. It is directed by Enrico Casarosa. And as you probably know by now, it is set in a small Italian town on the Mediterranean, and it's about sea monsters. And some people don't think that it's real gay, but I think it is. Mm. And it is a really lovely little, like, I'm going to call it a smaller Pixar movie. Sure. But it's just really lively and fun and... It's so summery. If you like, (laughs) I mean, it is the middle of summer right now, but if you want to get in like the most summery mood ever, you can watch Luca. It's like they're swimming around in the water and the Mediterranean and the water's super blue and they're sea monsters. And then they like get up in the town and they eat a bunch of pasta and they ride bikes and they (laughs) climb trees and they have all these friends. And it's just the most like sort of, listen, I've never been to Italy, but I really love this subgenre of movie that I like to call European summers into cap- uh, dilapidated villas. And <laughs> Under the Tuscan sun. Is that one of them? Uh, no, okay. the ones that I like are, are like actually European produced movies. So okay. they're usually like in Italian, you know, or French or something. Right. But uh, I would say like maybe um, the third before movie, like mm-hmm. before oh, midnight. Uh, midnight. midnight is very much. Yeah. European summers in a dilapidated villa genre. But anyway, Luke is also kind of one of those movies, but it's like a Pixar version of it. And it's just a really great, you know, sort of summer friends childhood movie that I also think happens to pretty much very obviously be a queer metaphor. But there's some debate about that. Like how queer is this movie? I think it's pretty queer myself. There's a scene in it. I'm doing a Luca spoiler. So stop listening for a minute. Uh, people who are about to watch it skip ahead 30 seconds yeah exactly um but there's a scene in it that's very similar or reminded me a lot of this a scene in moonlight where the two characters that are sea monsters and are trying to hide that fact they're both sea monsters together they're best friends but on land they look like normal people but they're really trying to hide the fact that they're Mm -hmm. both sea monsters together anyway there's a scene where one of them is gets thrown into the water and it becomes obvious that he's a sea monster and everyone's like oh no he's a sea monster mm-hmm. and then the other character has a chance to also reveal that he's a sea monster but he doesn't he goes ah sea monster and betrays his yeah. best friend that's a sea monster anyway some people think it's not that gay 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, there's a scene where one of them, you know, is revealed for who he really is, and the other one has a chance to take a stand and mm-hmm. also reveal that he's who he really is. And he chooses not to um, at the movie's crisis point. But anyway, you can watch it and decide for yourself. It's got a lot of flavor to it. It's got a lot of wonderful Italian music in it. It's got so many Vespas. It's got so much <laughs> pasta. Like, strong, pasta. strong recommend from me. This sounds like the Italian vacation I was supposed to go on in May of 2020. Right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Was it to a dilapidated villa? Yes, it was It was to, like, it was to the coast, like, the, the Naples, like, the whole area. Oh, oh you really were going to do it. I was going to okay. do it. Okay, well, you still have a chance, but anyway. Maybe in the some meantime, year. Yeah. In the just, meantime, just you can watch, watch Luca. Luca on your Disney Plus. There you, yeah. there you go. Brian, what have you been watching? <laughs> uh, well, on the topic of time travel and sea monsters, I watched a quiet documentary from <laughs> <laughs> about... Uh, well, br- this will bring us back to, to Barry Jenkins uh, and Moonlight, because, uh, or at least to Barry Jenkins. Uh, I Am Not Your Negro. The mm. documentary about James Baldwin, who was a it's writer. so beautiful. Yeah, he was so a good. R- writer, activist, public speaker during the civil rights movement. I'd been wanting to watch it since it came out and just finally like got to it for, for whatever reason I hadn't. But uh, the Barry Jenkins connection is that he also wrote the novel If Beale Street Could Talk, which then became Barry Jenkins' next movie after Moonlight. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting documentary. Uh, so, Alex, you've seen it? Yes, I have. Okay, so so I'm wondering like if how documentary brain works for you because I was like, I don't know if if this would be like taught in documentary filmmaking classes, because it's basically Sam Samuel L. Jackson narrating mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. passages from James Baldwin's writing. Then we get obviously clips of, of the, that era, the civil rights movement and of James Baldwin speaking. And he's such a just beautiful man and beautiful speaker uh, that he's just so, so arresting to watch, but also it feels sort of Tricia, like you were saying, the sort of poetic flow of moonlight. It doesn't feel, it's not like this man was born in this day. And here's, you know, what happened at the age of 10. It's just sort of this, we're flowing through poetically these like little snippets that are working together to illustrate his life and illustrate everything that, um, you know that the documentary is trying to convey but it ends up being something between a documentary and like a visual poem almost so it's beautiful Mm -hmm. i highly recommend it but just know that like don't go in expecting like an a&e biography or something like that it's very different well that's why i loved it you know yeah yeah. i can watch a ken burns doc if i want to just get the straight up (laughs) right like historical account but this is something different i really appreciated that yeah it's almost as good because it's basically like just reading one of james baldwin's books mm. or essays yeah. yeah i also really loved if bill street could talk mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. me too i yeah. really love that movie it's really pretty cool well this has been our conversation about moonlight thank you as always to the patrons for supporting the show for helping us get past our 750 patron goal unlocking Woo-hoo. indiana jones we're excited to go on that adventure coming soon want to say thank you as always to our producer vince major and our editor eric schneider I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. As always, Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet, say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.